0: 14. G. We gave our baggage to a Cossack to take to the hotel. Soon as the rush over the plank was ended I walked ashore from the Cossack off for the last time. So ended. For the present. My water journeying. I had zigzagged from New York a distance. By my line of travel. Not less than 15,000 miles. The only actual land route on my way had been 47 miles between Aspenwall and Panama. I had traveled on to ocean passenger steamers one private steamer of miniature size, a Russian corvette, a gunboat of the Siberian fleet, and two river boats of the Andor flotilla, not a serious accident had occurred to mar the pleasure of the journey, there had been discomforts, privations, and little annoyances of sufficient frequency, but they only added interest to the way, the proverb well says there is no rose without a thorn, and it might add that the rose would be less appreciable were there no thorn, Half our pleasures have their zest in the toil through which they are gained. In travel, the little hardships and vexations bring the novelties and comforts into stronger relief, and make the voyager's happiness more real. It is an excellent trait of human nature that the traveler can remember with increased vividness the pleasing features of his journey while he forgets their opposites. Privations and discomforts appeal directly to the body, their effect once past the physical system court's oblivion. Pleasures reach our higher being which experiences, enjoys, and remembers. Chapter XXII Stransk is neither large nor handsome. The most I saw of it was near the hotel whither we went from the boat. The rooms we were shown into faced the river, and had high walls decorated with a few pictures. My apartment had a brick stove in one corner, a table, three or four chairs, and a wide sofa or cushion bench without a bath. This last article served as bed by night and seat by day. No bed clothing is furnished in a Siberian hotel, each traveler being expected to carry his own supply. The government has a foundry and repair shop two miles above the town, where several steamers pass the winter and have their machinery repaired. Immediately on arrival we sent to request Mr. Lovett, the gentleman in charge of the works, to call upon us. He responded promptly, and came while we were at supper, being English and with a slight tendency to one. He readily accepted several bottles of bass and company that remained from our small stores. He was accompanied by Captain Ivo Shinsuff, who spoke English easily and well. His knowledge of it was obtained rather romantically as the story was told me. Two years earlier this officer happened in Hong Kong and during his stay on American vessel arrived. Her captain had been seriously ill for some weeks and totally incapable of duty. The first mate died on the voyage and the second was not equal to the difficulties of navigation. The captain was accompanied by his daughter, who had been several years at sea and learned the mysteries of Bowditch more as a pastime than for anything else. In the dilemma she assumed control of the ship, making the daily observation and employing the mate as executive officer. When they reached Hong Kong the captain was just recovering. The young woman came on shore, saw and conquered the Russian, neither spoke the other's language and their conversation was conducted in French. After their marriage they began to study, and had made such progress that I found the captain speaking good English, and learned that the lady was equally fluent in Russian. She was living at Stratensk at the time of my visit, and I greatly regretted that our short stay prevented my seeing her. She was a native of Chelsea, Massachusetts, and was said to enjoy her home on the Andor. Three or four steamers were in winter quarters and the off was to join them immediately. Both at Strathansk and Nikolaevsk it is the custom to remove the machinery from steamers during winter. It is carefully housed to prevent its rusting, and I presume to lessen the loss in case of fire or damage from breaking ice. We talked with our new friends till late in the evening, and then prepared to continue our journey. Lovett gave me his blessing and a feather pillow, the former to cover general accidents and the latter to prevent contusions from the jolting vehicle. Borstein obtained a Cossack to accompany us on the road and ordered our baggage made ready. The Cossack piled it into a wagon and it was transported to the ferry landing and dumped upon the gravel. We followed and halted in front of the Palisade Hotel of the Exiles. The ferry boat was on the opposite shore, four or five hundred yards away. Borstein called, but the boatman did not rise. Dice Lupka, send a boat. After a moment's pause he repeated, Dice Lupka, he added the usually magic word, courier, but it had no effect, he shouted repeatedly and grew hoarse, then I lifted up my voice like a pelican in the wilderness, but with no better effect, when we had almost reached the pitch of despair a man appeared from behind a wood pile and tried his vocal organs in our behalf, at his second call a reply was given, and very soon a light twinkled at the fairy house, the boat was a long time coming, and while we waited its arrival a drunken dirty it made himself unpleasantly familiar. As often as I changed my position he would come to my side and endeavor to rest his dirty arm on my shoulder. I finally walked through a pile of brushwood and crooked sticks, which was too much for the native with his weak knees and muddy brain. After struggling with a persistence of that would have been commendable had the object to be attained been commensurate to the effort, he became inextricably tangled and I left him in the loving embrace of a decayed treetop. The boat came with four shaggy ferrymen, who had some difficulty in reaching land. It was a kind of large skiff, high at both ends and having a platform, like that of a hay scale. In the center, the platform projected a foot or more beyond the sides of the boat, and had no railing to prevent a frightened horse or drunken man going overboard. This is the general style of river ferry boats in Siberia. The boatmen do not appear very skillful in handling them, but I learned that serious accidents were very rare. We piled our baggage and left the shore, running upon two rocks and colliding with a sandbar before getting fairly away. I fell asleep during the crossing, satisfied that the crew did not need my assistance. We landed where the road is cut into the rocky bank, and were obliged to lift the baggage over a pile of stony debris. The boatmen said it was impossible to go to the regular landing but I suspect they wished an extra gratuity for handling our impediment. Before the work was finished they regretted their maneuver. As we touched the shore one man went to the station to bring horses and a vehicle. Borstein and I scrambled over the rocks to the road fifteen feet above the water, and by the time the crew brought up our baggage the conveyance arrived. It was what the Russians call a telyata, drawn by three horses. This carriage is of quaker simplicity. There are four wheels on wooden axles. With rough but strong reaches, a body, shaped something like an old fashioned baby cart, rests upon the reaches or on poles fixed over them. The hood protects against wind and rain from behind, and the best of the vehicles have boots buttoned in front and attached to the hoods. The driver sits on the bow directly behind the shaft horse, and one part of his duty is to keep from falling off. The traveler spreads his baggage inside as evenly as possible to form a bed or cushion. Angular pieces should be discarded as the corners are disagreeable when jolted against one's sides, two shafts are fixed in the forward axle, and a horse between them forms a sort of point dupuy, any number from one to six can be tied on outside of him, the fault of our baggage was that we, or rather I had too much, worst of all, I had a wooden trunk that I proposed throwing away at Nikolaevsk, but had been told I could carry to Irkutsk without trouble, it could not ride inside, or if it did we could not, we placed the small articles in the interior of the vehicle, and tied the trunk and Borestein's dan on the projecting poles behind. The kemadan is in universal use among Siberian travelers, and admirably adapted to the road. It is made of soft leather, fastens with a lacing of deer-skin thongs, and can be lashed nearly watertight. It will hold a great deal. I never saw one completely filled, and accommodates itself to the shape of its aggregate contents. It can be of any size up to three or four feet long. And its dimensions are proportioned to each other about like those of an ordinary pocketbook. A great advantage is the absence of sharp corners and the facility of packing closely. We acted contrary to the custom of the country in tying our baggage behind. There are gentlemen of the road in Siberia as there are road agents in California. The Siberian highwaymen rarely disturb the person of a traveler. But their chief amusement is to cut away outside packages. As a precaution we mounted our cossack on the trunk, but before we went a mile he fell from his perch in spite of his utmost efforts to cling to the vehicle. After that event he rode by the driver's side. On seeing Lovett at Stransk, my first question related to the condition of the road. Horrid, said he, the worst time to travel. There has been much rain and cold weather. You will find but either soft or frozen most of the way to Cheetah. Before we started the driver brought an additional horse. And after a preliminary kick or two we took the road, for a few miles we went up and down hills along the edge of the river, where the route has been cut at much labor and expense, this was not especially bad, the worst places being at the hollows between the hills where the mud was half congealed, when we left the river we found the mud that it prophesied, quality and quantity were alike disagreeable, all roads have length more or less, hours had length, breadth, depth, and thickness. The bottom was not regular like that of the Atlantic, but broken into inequalities that gave an uneasy motion to the Tilyaga. To travel in Siberia one must have a Pateroshnya, or road pass, from the government authorities, stating the number of horses to which he is entitled. There are three grades of Pateroshnya, the first for high officials and couriers, the second for officers on ordinary business, and the third for civilian travelers. The first and second are issued free to those entitled to receive them, and the third is purchased at the rate of half a a verst. These papers serve the double purpose of bringing revenue to government and preventing unauthorized persons traveling about the country. A traveler properly provided presents his papers at a post station and receives horses in his turn according to the character of his documents. A person with a courier's pass is never detained for want of animals, other travelers must take their chance. Of course the second class of passport precedes the third by an inflexible rule. Suppose A has a second class and B a third class pataroshnia. A reaches a station and finds B with a team ready to start. If there are no more horses this Montreal station master detaches the animals from B's vehicle and supplies them to A. B must wait until he can be served, it may be an hour, a day, or a week. The stations are kept by contract. The government locates a station and its licensee is paid a stipulated sum each year. He agrees to keep the requisite horses and drivers, the numbers varying according to the importance of the route. He contracts to carry the post each way from his station to the next. The price for this service being included in the annual payment, he must keep one vehicle and three horses at all times ready for couriers, couriers, officers, and travelers of every kind pay at each station the rate fixed by law. In Kamchatka and northeastern Siberia the post route is equipped with dog teams, just as it has horses in more southerly latitudes. In the northern part of Yakutsk the reindeer is used for postal or traveling service. A padaroshnya calls for a given number of horses, usually three, without regard to the number of persons traveling upon it. Generally the names of all who are to use it are written on the paper, but this is not absolutely necessary. Borisne had a pateroshnya and so had I, but mine was not needed as long as we kept together. The post carriages must be changed at every station. Constant changing is a great trouble, especially if one has much baggage. In a wet or cold night, when you have settled comfortably into a warm nest, and possibly fallen asleep, it is an intolerable nuisance to turn out and transfer. To remedy this evil, one can buy a tarantass, a vehicle on the general principle of the Tilyaga, but larger stronger, and better in every way, when he buys there is a scarcity and the price is high, but when he has finished his journey and wishes to sell, it is astonishing how the market is glutted, at I endeavored to purchase a Tarantas, but only one could be had, this was too rheumatic for the journey, and very groggy in the springs, so at the advice of Lovat I adhered to the Tilyata, the Russians apply the term equipage to any vehicle, whether on wheels or runners, and with or without its motive power. It is a generic definition, and can include anything drawn by horses, dogs, deer, or camels. The word sounds very well when applied to a fashionable turnout, but less so when speaking of a dirt cart or wheelbarrow. The same word, equipage, is used in Russian as in French to denote a ship's crew. In this connection I heard an amusing story, vouched for as correct. A few years after the disappearance of Sir John Franklin, the English Admiralty requested the Russian government to make inquiries for the lost navigator along the coast and islands of the Arctic Ocean. An order to that effect was sent to the Siberian authorities, and they in turn commanded all subordinates to inquire and report. A petty officer somewhere in western Siberia was puzzled at the printed order to inquire concerning the English captain, John Franklin, and his equipage. In due time, he reported, I have made the proper inquiries, I can order nothing about Captain Franklin, but in one of my villages there is an old sleigh that no one claims, and it may be his equipage, we carried one and sometimes two bells on the yoke of our shaft horse to signify that we traveled by post, every humbler vehicle was required to give us the entire road, at least such was the theory, sometimes we obtained it, and sometimes the approaching drivers were asleep, and the horses kept their own way. When this occurred our driver generally took an opportunity to bring his whiplash upon the sleeper. It is a privilege he enjoys when driving a post carriage to strike his delinquent fellow man if in reach. I presume this is a partial consolation for the kicks and blows occasionally showered upon himself. Humanity in authority is pretty certain to give others the treatment itself has received. Only great natures will deal charity and kindness when remembering oppression and cruelty. I was not consulted when our telyada was built, else it would have been wider and longer. When our small parcels were arranged inside there was plenty of room for one but hardly enough for two. Borstein and I were of equal height, and neither measured a hair's breadth less than six feet. When packed for riding I came in questionable shape, my body and limbs forming a geometric figure that Euclid never knew. Notwithstanding my cramped position I managed to doze a little and contemplated in essay on a new mode of triangulation. We rattled our bones over the stones and frozen earth, and dragged and dripped through the mud to the first station. As we reached the establishment our Cossack and driver shouted, Courier! In tones that soon brought the Smotryl and his attendants, they rubbed their half-open eyes and disturbed themselves to bring horses. The word courier invigorates the attaches of a post route, as they well know that the bearer of a courier's task must not be delayed. Ten minutes are allowed for changing a courier's horses, and the change is often made in six or eight minutes. The length of the journey depends considerably upon the time consumed at stations. Here we found a tarantass, neither new nor elegant, but strong and capacious. We hired it to Nurchinsk, and our Cossack transferred the baggage while four little rats of ponies were being harnessed. The harness used on this road was a combination of leather and hemp in about equal proportions. There were always traces of ropes more or less twisted. It is judicious to carry a quantity of rope in one's vehicle for use in case of accident. A Russian Yemshik driver is quite skillful in repairing breakages if he can find enough rope for his purpose. The horses, like many other terrestrial things, were better than they appeared. And notwithstanding the bad road they carried us at good speed, I was told that the horses between Stransk and Lake Baikal were strangers to corn and oats and not over familiar with hay. Those at the post stations must be fed in the stable, but nearly all others hunt their own food. In summer they can easily do this, but in winter they subsist on the dry grass standing on the hills and prairies. There is little snow in this region, but when it falls on the pastures the horses scrape it away to reach the grass. They are never blanketed in the coldest weather, and the only brushing they receive is when they run among bushes. In the government of Yakuts there are many horses that find their own living in winter as in summer. They eat grass, moss, fish, bushes, and sometimes the bark of trees. Captain Wrangel tells of the great endurance of these beasts, and says that like all other animals of that region they shed their coats in the middle of summer. At the second station the Smotrio sought our horses among the village peasants, as he had none of his own. He explained that a high official had passed and taken the horses usually kept for the courier. This did not satisfy Borstein, who entered complaint in the regulation book, stating the circumstances of the affair. At every station there is a book sealed to a small table and open to public inspection. An aggrieved traveler is at liberty to record a statement of his trouble. At regular intervals an officer investigates the affairs of every station. Complaints are examined and offenses treated according to their character, this wholesome regulation keeps the station masters in proper restraint, they had fairly opened through a dense fog when our delay ended, while we descended along hill one of our hinder wheels parted company and took a tangent to the roadside, we were in full gallop at the time, but did not keep it up long, a pole from a neighboring fence, held by a pole from Warsaw, lifted the axle so that the wheel could be replaced. I assisted by leaving the carriage and standing at the roadside till all was ready. We had some doubts about the vehicle holding together much longer, but it behaved very well. The Tarantass is a marvel of endurance. To listen to the creaking of its joints, and observe its air of infirmity, lead to the belief that it will go to pieces within a few hours. It rattles and groans and threatens prompt analysis, but somehow it continues cohesive and preserves its identity hundreds of miles over rough roads. We were murder-sealous to the horses as they were not ours and we were in a hurry. When the driver allowed them to lag, Borstein ejaculated the O.S.H.O.L., with a great deal of emphasis and much effect. This word is like faster in English, and is learned very early in a traveler's career in Russia. I acquired it before reaching the first station on my ride, and could use it very skillfully. In the same connection are the words dry touch-up, scurry hurry, and stupid go ahead. All these commands have the accent upon the last syllable, and are very easy to the vocal organs, I learn at them all and often use them, but to this day I do not know the Russian word for slower, I never had occasion to employ it while in the empire, except once when thrown down an icy slope with a heap of broken granite at its base, and at another time when a couple of pretty girls were standing by the roadside and, as I presumed, wanted to look at me, from Stransk to Nurchinsk, a distance of sixty miles, our road led among hills, undulating ground, meadows, and strips of steppe, or prairie, sometimes close to the river, and again several miles away, the country is evidently well adapted to agriculture, the condition of the farms and villages indicating prosperity, I saw much grain in stacks or gathered in small barns, as it was Sunday no work was in progress, and there were but few teams in motion anywhere. The roads were such that no one would travel for pleasure, and the first day of the week is not used for business journeys. From the top of a hill I looked into the wide and beautiful valley of the Nurcha, which enters the Shilka from the north. On its left bank and two or three miles from its mouth is the town of Nurchinsk with five or six thousand inhabitants. Its situation is charming, and to me the view was especially pleasing, as it was the first Russian town where I saw evidences of age and wealth. The domes of its churches glistened in the sunlight that had broken through the fog and warmed the tints of the whole picture. The public buildings and many private residences had an air of solidity. Some of the merchants' houses would be no discredit to New York or London. The approach from the east is down a hill sloping toward the banks of the Nurcha. We entered the gateway of Nerchinsk, and after passing some of the chief buildings drove to the house of Mr. Kaporaki, where we were received with open arms. Borstein and his acquaintance kissed affectionately, and after their greeting ended I was introduced, we unloaded from the tarantass, piled our baggage in the hallway, and dismissed the driver with the borrowed vehicle, almost before we were out of our wrappings the samovar was steaming, and we sat down to a comforting breakfast, with abundance of tea, and didn't we enjoy it after riding 8 or 10 hours over a road that would have shaken skim milk into butter, you bet we did, chapter xxiii. The heaviest fortunes at Nurchinsk have been made in commerce and gold mining, principally the latter. I met one man reputed to possess three million rubles, and two others who were each put down at over a million. Mr. Kaporaki, our host, was a successful gold miner, if I may judge by what I saw. His dwelling was an edifice somewhat resembling Arlington House, but without its signs of decay. The principal rooms I entered were his library, parlor, and dining room, The first was neat and cozy, and the second elaborately fitted with furniture from St. Petersburg. Both were hung with pictures and paintings, the former bearing French imprints. His dining room was in keeping with the rest of the establishment, and I could hardly realize that I was in Siberia, 5,000 miles from the Russian capital and nearly half that distance from the Pacific Ocean. The realization was more difficult when our host named a variety of wines ready for our use. Would we take Sherry, Port, or Madeira, or would we prefer Johannesburg, Hockheimer, or Verzany? Would we try View of Clickwatt, or Cartdor? A box of genuine Havana stood upon his library table, and received our polite attention. We arrived about ten in the morning, and on consenting to remain till afternoon a half-dozen merchants were invited to join us at dinner. Mr. Caprocki's gold mines were on the tributaries of the Nurcha, about a hundred miles away. From his satisfied air in showing specimens and figures I concluded his claims were profitable. The mining season had just closed, and he was putting up his gains and losses for the year. The gold he exhibited was in coarse scales, with occasional nuggets, and closely resembled the product I saw a few months earlier of some washings near mariposa. The gold on the nurture and its tributaries is found in the sand and earth that form the bed of the streams. Often it is many feet deep and requires much stripping. I heard of one priest claim where the pay dirt commenced sixty-five feet from the surface. Notwithstanding the great expense of removing the superincumbent earth, the mine had been worked to a profit. Twenty or thirty feet of earth to take away is by no means uncommon. The pay dirt is very rich, and the estimates of its yield are stated at so many zolotniks of gold for a hundred poods of earth. From one pood of dirt, of course, unusually rich. Mr. Koperaki obtained 24 Zolotniks, or 3 ounces of gold, in another instance 10 poods of dirt yielded 90 Zolotniks of gold, the ordinary yield, as near as I could ascertain, was what a Californian would call 5 or 6 cents to the pan. each of these merchant miners pays to the government 15 per cent, of all gold he obtains, and is not allowed to sell the dust except to the proper officials. He delivers his gold and receives the money for it as soon as it is melted and assayed. It was hinted to me that much gold was smuggled across the frontier into China, and never saw the treasury of his imperial majesty, the Tsar. The Cossacks of the Argoon keep a sharp watch for traffic of this kind. They either, said my informant, deliver a culprit over to justice or, what is the same thing? Compel him to bribe them heavily to say nothing. Nurchinsk formerly stood at the junction of the Nurcha and Shilka, on the banks of both rivers, but the repeated damage from floods caused its removal. Even on its present site it is not entirely safe from inundation, the lower part of the town having been twice underwater and in danger of being washed away. Many of the present inhabitants are exiles or the descendants of exiles. Nurchinsk having been a place of banishment for political and criminal offenders during the last hundred years. Those condemned to work in the mines were sent to Great Nurchinsk Zavod, about 200 miles away. The town was the center of the military and mining district, and formerly had more importance than at present. Many participants in the insurrection of 1825 were sent there, among them the princes Trebekoy and Volbanskoy. After laboring in the mines and on the roads of Nurchinsk, they were sent to Chita, where they were employed in a polishing mill, in many stories about Siberian exiles published in England and America. Nurchinsk has occupied a prominent position. As far as I could observe it is not a place of perpetual frost and snow. Its summers being warm though brief. In winter it has cold wines blowing occasionally from the Yablonoi mountains down the valley of the Nurcha. The region is very well adapted to agriculture, and the valley as I saw it had an attractive appearance. The product of the Nurchinsk mines has been silver, gold, and lead. The search for silver and lead has diminished since the mines were open to private enterprise. At one time 40.000 pounds of lead were produced here annually, most of it being sent to the Altai Mountains to be employed in reducing silver. In most places where explored the country is rich in gold, and I have little doubt that thorough prospecting would reveal many placers equaling the best of those in California. Very few exiles are now sent to Nurchinsk in comparison with the numbers formerly banished there. Under the reign of Nicholas and his father Nurchinsk received its greatest accessions, the Polish revolutions and the revolt of 1825 contributing largely to its population. Places of exile have always been selected with relation to the offense and character of the prisoners. The worst offenders, either political or criminal, were generally sent to the minds of Nurchinsk their terms of service varying from two to twenty years, or for life. I was told that the longest sentence now given is for twenty years. The condition of prisoners in former times was doubtless bad, and there are many stories of cruelty and extortion practiced by keepers and commandants. The dwellings of prisoners were frequently no better than the huts of savages, their food and clothing were poor and insufficient. They were compelled to labor in half-frozen mud and water for twelve or fourteen hours daily, and beaten when they faltered. The treatment of prisoners depended greatly upon the character of the commandant of the mines. Of the brutality of some officials and the kindness of others there can be little doubt. We have sufficient proof of the varied qualities of the human heart in the conduct of prison keepers in America during our late war. There have been many exaggerations concerning the treatment of exiles. I do not say there has been no cruelty, but that less has occurred than some writers would have us believe, before leaving America I read of the rigorous manner in which the sentence of the conspirators of 1825 was carried out, according to one authority the men were loaded with chains and compelled to the hardest labor in the mines under relentless overseers, they were badly lodged, federal with insufficient food, and one ill had little or no medical treatment, Nearly all these unfortunates were of noble families and never performed manual labor before reaching the mines. They had been tenderly reared, and were mostly young and in use to the hardships of life outside the capitals. Thrust at once into the mines of Siberia they could hardly survive a lengthened period of the cruelty alleged. Most of them served out their sentences and retained their health. Some returned to Europe after more than 30 years exile, and a few were living in Siberia at the time of my visit. 41 years after their banishment, I conclude they were either blessed with more than iron constitutions, or there is some mistake in the account of their suffering and privation. Many attempts have been made to escape from these mines, but very few were completely successful. Some prisoners crossed into China after dodging the vigilant Cossacks on the frontier, but they generally perished in the deserts of Mongolia, either by starvation or at the hands of the natives. I have heard of two who reached the Gulf of Pushali after many hardships, where they captured a Chinese fishing boat and put to sea. When almost dead of starvation they were picked up by an English bark and carried to Shemhi, where the foreign merchants supplied them with money to find their way to Paris. A better route than this was by the Andor, before it was open to Russian navigation. Many who escaped this way lost their lives, but others reached the seacoast where they were picked up by whalers or other transient ships. In 1844 3 men started for the Okhotsk Sea travel